Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast for Wednesday, June 15th. I'm Rubina Ahmed-Huck, in for Greg Brady, and on today's show, we spoke with Laura Williams, an employment lawyer, about the right to disconnect. Also, Robert Kokonis, founder and managing director at AirTrav. He was here talking about the dropping of vaccine mandates for travel. Thank you for listening, and Toronto Today starts now. Welcome back to Toronto Today. I'm Rubina Ahmed-Huck, in for Greg Brady. He'll be back on Friday. I'll be here warming his seat. Today and tomorrow. So I hope you'll join me 5.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. right here on 640 Toronto. Uh, A new right to disconnect policy was supposed to be in place by the end of this month. Uh, Employers uh, were supposed to have uh, some uh, policy in place uh, that would uh, give workers the right to disconnect. So a lot of people feel that they're always on their phones or always on their emails. Their boss can call them on Friday night, Saturday morning. And so this uh, policy, this right to con- disconnect policy was put in place to stop that. Um, mainly, you know, it's burning people out. Um, everyone uh, I know who has a work phone uh, would agree with me that it is. it does feel a little bit like a, a ball and chain, right? So you're stuck to that all day and you can be contacted at any time by your employer, by your boss, by your manager uh, and asked even simple questions like, hey, do you remember where that file was or um, are you going to be at work on Monday? And all those things disrupt your time with your family. They disrupt your time, uh, your personal time. And so now the Ontario government wants uh, workplaces to come up with a policy that is going to give uh, their employees uh, the right to not answer. Uh, some uh, workplaces uh, are saying that, uh, that that you know they're rather some workers are saying that the place that they work at has this expectation of long hours, working on weekends, and this right to disconnect policy is simply not going to be enough to root out these deeply entrenched cultures of you know always being in this twenty four hour world, which has only become worse during the pandemic, where we've been remote. And so, um, you know, the only way people can contact you is through phone or email. And so they're doing that longer and longer days. And uh, a lot of people are feeling quite um, burnt out from it. Uh, To break down what this right to disconnect law or policy, I should say, means, uh, we're joined by Laura Williams. She's an employment lawyer at Williams HR Law LLP in Markham. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Rubina. Thanks so much for having me. So tell me, what is this right to disconnect policy? What should we know about it? Well, the right to disconnect policy or disconnecting from work policies, as some employers have have called it, um, they're now required in workplaces that have 25 or more employees as of January 1 of each year. So for this year, right to disconnect or disconnecting from work policies had to be implemented by Ontario workplaces as of June 2nd. In future years for employees, employers that have 25 employers, employees or more, as of January 1, it will be by March, the beginning of March each year. And really the requirement in the amendments to the Employment Standards Act legislation, which is where the requirement lives, um, it really is to just implement a policy that applies to all employees within the workplace. And so some of the criticism is, is that it's quite vague, that it's not a law, it's a policy and uh, companies are not going to follow through with this. Talk to me a little bit about um, how strong this policy is uh, when it comes to employees' rights to disconnect. Well, this, these amendments have caused a lot of confusion and have misset expectations Mm. in the workplace because a lot of employees believe that they have 
a right to be free from perform, performing work of any kind after a certain time so that they believe they can just be off the clock. And that's not the case. The right to disconnect really only requires a policy to be implemented. And the policy can implement just what's already required under Employment Standards Act legislation with respect to hours of work. So, for example, hours of work restrictions that relate to maximum hours of work to be performed in any given work week, such as 48. Um, It it could relate to maximum hours of work that can be uh, or rest periods or the fact that after five consecutive hours worked by an employee that they're entitled to a break of half an hour of unpaid uh, that usually is like an unpaid lunch. But these requirements are already in the legislation and employers can implement disconnecting from work policies that just confirm these minimum requirements and not truly a right to disconnect as as expected by employees. So if an employee works in a, uh, a company or an organization where they have been called on the weekend or on their days off, whenever those days off are during their family time, uh, what can they do to find out what their, if they do work for a company with 25 employees or more, uh, what can they do to find out what their workplace is doing uh, when it comes to this right to disconnect policy? Well, the for work for workers that have policies implemented in their workplaces, the you know, the disconnection from work policy should stipulate anything related to their right to disconnect. What we're going to find, and you rightly at the beginning, you know, outline that a lot, there's been a lot of criticism that, you know, this new law that requires the implementation of policies, that it is pretty toothless. So again, a lot of employees, they do believe that if they look at their workplace policy related to disconnection from work, that it's going to give them guidance with respect to when they can unplug, because that's what it's all about. You know, again, we have stats that confirm rates of one to three Canadians reporting that they're burned out. And as a result of that, you know, they believe that now there are requirements that are imposed on employers to, you know, allow them to pull the plug. And a lot of these policies won't provide that guidance. Mm -hmm. So again, a lot of what employees are going to be resorting to practically is what's already been kind of the, the, the requirements in workplace under Employment Standards Act legislation, which really sets out the, the floor of entitlements, the minimum entitlements as it relates to working conditions in Ontario workplaces. Laura, talk to me a little bit about how you've been advising your clients who come to you and say, we, wanna, uh, we want to make a right to disconnect policy for our workers. Um, how have you been advising them they, how they can put that together? Well, the really the fundamental advice that our firm's been providing is, listen, you know, you could just confirm what's in the Employment Standards Act legislation and really not provide anything new. But practically speaking, employees have expectations and their expectations are not misplaced. Coming out of the pandemic, as I mentioned, and as you mentioned from the top, there people are struggling and we're struggling based on how we've had to radically change how we work and with how, you know, we're, we're all of our work for the most part is, uh, you know, enabled by technology, which means that we can instantly communicate with, with each other. We have also misset expectations with respect to our availability and our capability in terms of performing work. So the advice to employers is know that employees have expectations that they're not going to have to work around the clock that they have expectations also because of this legislation, even though it doesn't say what they may believe it says or doesn't provide entitlements that they believe it provides, 
and be practical and know that in this labor market where it's really difficult to attract talent, that you have to meet employees at their needs and also your leaders at their needs, meaning that this policy is supposed to apply to everyone. And given the fact that everyone is taxed at this point in terms of just how hard we've been working through the pandemic and that, that we, there should be some practical requirements around, you know, not needing to instantaneously re respond to everything that comes into your inbox at all hours, you know, truly providing times that employees can expect to be free from performing work where their roles permit. Uh, we're speaking to Laura Williams, employment lawyer at Williams HR Law LLP in Markham, talking about the new right to disconnect policy where some companies uh, were supposed to have that policy in place by June 2nd. And the criticism is, is that it's not strong enough. Like you said, it doesn't really have teeth. It doesn't really stick in some in some cases. Uh, if the culture of the company is one where you're supposed to be on 24-7, uh, then that that's really not going to do anything except for just provide some lip service and say, oh, we did our job. We've got this policy. But in practice, they're not actually doing it. If there is a workplace policy to disconnect and they've, uh, the worker knows what it is, they know what their rights are, and they're contacted, say, you know, on a Saturday afternoon when they're supposed to be with their family, uh, what what rights do they have at that point? Uh, should they just ignore the call? Should they leave that work phone at home? How can they proactively disconnect from their job um, if they're still contacting them on, on off hours? Well, if the policy does truly provide times that are fr free from work during any kind of work week and the employee is contacted outside of those times, then it would be within the employee's right within the context of the kind of terms of their employment to not respond. Now, you know, there has to be some kind of practical um, and flexibility in any policy, because given the nature of the work, let's say if somebody has, uh, there's something critical that uh, relates to responding to a customer or client need, then perhaps that will be kind of stipulated in the policy that, you know, if, 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 if these conditions exist, then, you know, it's, it's expected that you would respond um, and perform some work of, to some degree. But certainly if there isn't that type of um, exception set out in the policy and the policy sets out times that are free from work, then that should be, you know, that should be respected by the employer and that should be provided to the employee. Uh, Laura, you're a busy employment lawyer. I'm sure that you work at all hours and you serve your clients whenever they need you. Um, what's some advice that you have just from your own personal perspective of how you disconnect uh, when you need to have that downtime and, and sort of protect and, uh, your energy uh, to make sure that you're not getting burnt out? Well, the one thing that the pandemic really did show a lot of us is that, you know, you know, in work and in life generally, one of the things we fail to prioritize is ourselves. So the one thing that I, you know, I, I do try is to do is to make sure that you know, I do carve out periods of downtime, be it on the weekend to kind of restore, reboot, refresh. But practically speaking, what a lot of individuals can do in the workplace from leaders to non-managerial employees is we have to stop, st stop setting unrealistic expectations along the parts of our kind of clients and customers as to when we're available. You know, we've created this and brought this on ourselves to a certain degree. You know, we send emails out to clients, at, you know, well after hours. We respond to communications that are not urgent after hours with clients and customers and even with our colleagues. I mean, we can, particularly for non-urgent matters, and a lot of the matters are non-urgent, 
It, it's we can, you know, really put a stick in the sand and say that after a certain period of time could be, you know, after I'm going to pull it at, you know, six, maybe 530, depending on what your work demands, I'm not going to be responding and don't mistrain people to expect that you're available and at the ready at any given moment. Yeah, I think that's very good uh, advice there. Don't uh, don't give people the expectation that you're just always on and, and it's okay to call you on a Sunday afternoon when you should be uh, should be you should be with your family and the person you're calling should also have uh, the privilege to stay with their family. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today and breaking this down um, because I think it's a really important uh, new policy and uh, people should be paying attention um, and and using it to their advantage to make sure they're getting that work life balance that so many of us crave. Thanks so much for coming on the program, Laura. Thanks for being. I have a great day. You as well. Laura Williams is an employment lawyer at Williams HR Law LLP. We were talking about the new uh, right to disconnect policy that uh, many workplaces should have had in place. Uh, by June 2nd and what that really means practically uh, to people. One thing that I do is I, when I have time off, I put it in my family calendar. So, uh, you know, I'm a freelancer. It's really easy for me to overbook myself. So once it's in the family calendar that we're taking a week off, I'm accountable because my husband will look at me and say, you said we're taking that week off and you just booked yourself for X, Y, and Z. So, you know, whatever works for you in your situation, but that's one way where I just sort of, I make sure that everyone knows. And then if I slip and say, oh, I'm going to work those days, someone reminds me, uh-uh, you put it in the family calendar. My daughter now has access to that too, my 10-year-old, so she reminds me as well. Uh, Dave Bradley will have your 7 o'clock news at the top of the hour. Um, after that, I want to get into a few things. Toronto police are set to make an apology at 10.30 this morning. And there's a CEO that says the standard 9 to 5 workday is done. So talking a little bit more about workplace. And we'll find out what it means about how, about that coming up. This is Toronto Today. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck in for Greg Brady on 640 Toronto. This is Toronto Today. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck sitting in for Greg Brady. And it's time for our four for four quiz with Shiba Tzatziki, Gord Rennie and Tzatziki. Dave Bradley. Did I say your name wrong, Tzatziki? Tzatziki? Tzatziki. A, I called you Tzatziki. <laughs> okay. Maybe that should be your new nickname. Uh, today, Shiba asks the questions and we try to answer them to the best of our ability. Shiba, what's today's quiz all about? Okay. Who here loves Shark Week? Dave. Oh, yeah, I totally love sharks. I think yeah. you do. So yeah. Dave's been, uh, Ruby, I don't know if you know this, he's been swimming with sharks. Okay. Sharks. Oh, and it's an amazing video. He shared it with us. It's just a great experience. Gord, do you like Shark Week? I, yeah, I don't, I'm not at Dave's level of excitement, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind it at all. <laughs> okay, it's National Megalodon Day. Oh. oh. Has anyone one. here seen the Meg? Yes. I, it scared me. The, the movie? Yes, the I movie. haven't, actually. Oh, it's amazing. Is it? Yes. I wasn't sure if it was, and I didn't want to sort of, yeah. Well, if you like sharks, which I know you do, I think you'll find it interesting. All because, right, cool. I mean, it's, it. it's got the effects and, you know, the, the graphics and whatnot, but the actual story of how it could be possible and the science that they put behind it to justify why Megs could come up into the ocean, it makes sense. All right. So, so it, go it's, home it's, today. it's not quite as far-fetched as uh, Sharknado? <laughs> no, all right. All. No. <laughs> that was a cinematic masterpiece. By did the way. you watch? Did you watch? Have you seen that? I, I watched like half an hour of it. Oh come like, on! You'll never ridiculous. get that thirty minutes. No, no, no. The Meg is a great movie. Okay, cool. Okay, well, it's National Meg Day. Megalodon swam the Earth's ocean twenty million years ago. Only you guys, you should oh. remember that. A little mm -hmm. clue there. Okay. Um. So their mouths span between eight and eleven feet wide, guys. Eight Ooh. and eleven feet wide, and their teeth were. Each tooth was seven inches long. Mm. So these, we, we'd have no chance. First question. You guys ready? You ready for this? Yes. Okay, let's see who takes home the shark crown. 
The largest number of fossilized megalodon teeth can be found where in the world? North Carolina, South Africa, Vancouver. Ooh. Rubina. Ooh. I'm going to go with Vancouver. You don't sound convinced. <laughs> Only because there's a big ocean there, so mm. I'm thinking, you know, there might be megalodons that were there 20 million years ago. That's my Okay. It's I'm going to go with South Africa, just thinking that where it is now isn't where it was. Oh, yeah, good point. When the megalodons were swimming around. So I'm going to go with South Africa. Dave. First thing I thought was South Africa, too, so I'm going to go with that, just trusting my gut. Okay, we are all off to a bad start. You're all wrong. Really? North Carolina? North Carolina. Aurora, North Carolina, in a place called Lee Creek, which I'm assuming is not actually a creek, but mm-hmm. that's where that's where the most <laughs> fossilized teeth are found. Really? Yes. Huh. Well, they ended up there. And they have a museum there. So next time you're in Aurora, North, North Carolina, you can go to the Meg Museum and learn all about them. Interesting. That's right. Mm. And you can say, we're not lost. We're here to see the sharks. <laughs> 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 okay, second question. About 2.5 million years ago, Megs began to disappear. When they started to die out, what happened to other sea animals, such as whales? They became more aggressive. They grew larger. They began to fear great white sharks. Dave. I'm going to say they grew larger because they lost a big predator, probably. Gord. Uh, let's say they they got more aggressive, and that's where the killer whale came from. Ooh. Mm, what was mm. the third choice, Sheba? They, they began to fear great white sharks. Mm, I think they grew larger. I'm, I'm with that theory, too, that they weren't, uh, they had the ability to grow more because they weren't being attacked as much and killed. Dave and Rubina, you're uh, geniuses. Nice. Geniuses. Mm. Bang on. And that's exactly the reason why they were able to thrive and survive for longer in the ocean because their major predator was gone. Mm. Okay. True or false? Dinosaurs and megalodons coexisted. Gord. Uh, true, I think. Rubina. <laughs> I, I'm going to go with true. When I think Megalodon, I think kind of dinosaurs anyway. So, yes, true. Dave. Yeah, I'm going to say true because 20 million years ago, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, you're all wrong. Oh. Oh. It's false. Dinosaurs died at about 66 million years ago. Oh. Oh, right. Megs just a few came, million years off. <laughs> Megs came 40 million years after dinosaurs. Huh. Okay. Mm. Last question. Megalodon means water dinosaur, fierce predator, or giant tooth. Rubina. I'm not going to say water dinosaur because we know that that's not when they existed. So I'm going to say fierce tooth? No, there's fierce predator. Oh, yeah. Or giant tooth. Oh, yeah. I just combined the two. Okay, so I'm going to go with the giant tooth, that seven-inch tooth. Dave. What was the first one about dinosaurs? Water dinosaur. Hmm. Um, no, I'm going to, I'm going to say giant tooth as well. Gord. I'm going to go with water dinosaur because the, uh, was it the megalodon or mastodon? Or megalodon. Megalodon. Yeah. Mastodon. Right? <laughs> so a, it was a dinosaur. So let's go with water dinosaur. Okay. Rubina and Dave are on a roll. Oh, it yes. Giant tooth. Giant thinking tooth. mega, right? Yes. Yeah. Mega. Yeah. That's it. Good job. We know who the nice experts quiz. are. That was a good one. Handle themselves in, with a Meg in front of them. And go watch the Meg. It's a great movie. All you right, just quiz them to death. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to work. Just like the bear that I come across. Great quiz, uh, Sheba.
Uh, let's go to traffic at 742. Let's take a look at 640 Toronto Chopper traffic. Welcome back to Toronto Today. I'm Rubina Ahmed-Huck in for Greg Brady. He'll be back on Friday. I'll be filling in this seat today and tomorrow, so I hope you'll join me on the program. Uh, Starting today, the federal government has suspended vaccine mandates for domestic and outgoing international travel. And I really want to make sure people understand that it's suspended, not gotten rid of the mandates. So it's something that they could bring back if they felt it was needed. Uh, But for right now, it is suspended. You do not need to show your vaccination status uh, in order to travel in the country uh, or if you're outgoing internationally. The mandates first came into effect uh, back in October 30th, 2021, and they have required all passengers on planes or trains to be fully vaccinated uh, in order to be allowed to board. Now, the government has been facing increased press pressure to reduce constraints around travel as passenger volumes increased at airports as restrictions were lifted and there were lengthy delays for passengers. So could this make the difference? Uh, could suspending these vaccine mandates uh Uh, make it quicker for you and I to get through uh, the airport security and all the other things that you have to go through when you are boarding a plane. Uh, Earlier, I spoke to Robert Kokonis, founder and managing director at AirTrav. It's an aviation consulting firm. The fact of the matter is, from an industry perspective, the government should have looked at these measures um, a long time ago. And really, it wasn't until uh, a, a, a vast majority within the prime minister's caucus indicated they wanted these measures dropped uh, like right away, that finally the Prime Minister read the tea leaves correctly and, and of course, has led to today's announcement that that domestic uh, travel, uh, you don't need to be vaccinated, nor for outbound travel to international destinations. So a bit of politics, a lot of politics in play, but uh, but realistically, as you intone, even, you know, a few steps in the right direction will be helpful to the travel industry. And yes, I will expect uh, more folks to be traveling. And with those more folks traveling, will it balance? Uh, will the balance now be that uh, there are going to be even more people at the airport than there were before? So even though there's that one less thing that they have to do in order to get people onto planes, there's just going to be more volume of people. So it may not actually help the situation. Are you concerned about that? I'm not concerned whatsoever because, again, if you want to take the government's uh, line that we follow the science, well, the the real science, for example, is published by the International Air Transport Association, IATA, which is the largest airline association in the world, roughly 285 members, including Air Canada, Air Transat. There's been very, very little documented cases of in-flight transmission of the virus. And that's because of the way airflow circulates in the cabin and also because of very, very um, high quality HEPA filtering. So having more people traveling, in my opinion, and and that of the association is not an issue uh, whatsoever. And again, the reality is today's measures lifting those vaccination requirements, those mandates, uh, we know anyways, because of Omicron, that people that were only uh, inoculated with the first two doses the effectiveness of those doses, those original shots versus Omicron and and later variants is very minimal. So it just didn't make sense. And many governments elsewhere in the world have similarly dropped those requirements. So it was just a, uh, it, it, it just made common sense that Canada follows suit. 
What about those travelers who are now concerned about their health and safety? Because regardless of um, of how they may say it's safe, some people still have a lot of anxiety when it comes to contracting COVID-19. And if that person was on the fence about traveling, this may put them back you know, on the other side of the fence again, where they're not going to travel because they're not sure who they're going to be sitting next to. And if that, that person may transmit COVID-19 to them. What messaging do you have for those travelers who now feel anxious about traveling uh, in this new normal? Well, well, one analogy might also be that we can go to a Raptors or a Leafs game at Scotiabank Arena and and I can sit with 18 or 20,000 other uh, fellow fans and and people don't have masks on, or I can go to my local uh, shopping mall or pharmacy. So what makes it different uh, in flight? But as I said uh, in my earlier comment, very little documented cases internationally of uh, a person-to-person transmission. Again, because the in-flight cabin air environment is is very safe. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's up to the traveler now. If you don't feel, and I'll just tell for myself, I, I'm an aviation consultant. I travel a lot and I will continue to mask in flight for uh, probably another uh, six months to a year. I just feel comfortable with that. Uh, and, and that's the, the travelers uh, at their own discretion and, and comfort level. And that they really still feel, they, they don't feel right, uh, don't feel confident traveling in an unmasked environment, then of course the traveler, if they have to make a decision not to travel, that's going to be theirs alone. But we have to move forward uh, with the actual science. We have to move forward lockstep with the rest of the industry in other countries. Now, this uh, mandate has been in place since October 30th, 2021. What has this done uh, to the travel industry? What kind of damage has it caused it? Travel and tourism, aviation, uh, likely one of the hardest hit, if not the hardest hit sector in our economy. I know the CEO of one of Canada's larger airlines was at a, uh, a, a industry function and people were standing up, senior leaders around the room from different industries talking about, you know, our, our, our sector took a 40% hit, it took a 60% hit. And this CEO of this airline stood up and said, at one day during the early part of the pandemic, they had 1%, 1% of their normal bookings. So the aviation industry is very capital intensive, very expensive to run. So going from you know full, full operation to almost zero revenues overnight uh, has really done a number. So, but we're gonna come back. And one of the, the, the confidence points for us is that there's a huge pent up demand for travel. People feel as if they left uh, two, two good years behind in their lives and they're anxious to get back out there. Of course, we have some concerns this fall, once we get past the, the summer peak is, is, has sold very well. A bit more concern as we head into, this, into the fall months, that as the average household sees the impact of rising interest rates and their mortgage payment, uh, inflation in general, the prospect of, of, a, of a recession and possibly some job pressures, uh, there might be a suppression to bookings, but for the time being, uh, people have been voting with their wallets, with their four bookings and, and, and getting to the skies again. And, and hopefully with these steps the government's been taking uh, today and also late last week, they announced the suspension at least until the end of this month of voluntary or sorry, random uh, testing of asymptomatic passengers. We think the government will tr- will uh, convert that into a, into a permanent suspension. All these different measures will help. We only now want the government to go the rest of the way, which is to, for example, uh, you know, get rid of the masking for sure uh, in, in all in all areas, but more particularly for inbound international flights, 
to to lift the requirement to use this arrive can app we've all heard so much about it. it's difficult to use it really not applicable anymore I wanted to ask you, Robert, uh, you know, there's this uh, feeling that uh, especially one segment of Canadian society has saved up a ton of money uh, during the pandemic uh, because of a number of different reasons. They were able to keep their job. Their expenses didn't rise because they weren't traveling. They weren't going to restaurants. They weren't putting their kids in activities and um, generally were staying home, which obviously is much cheaper to do when you than than moving around. Uh, there was this expectation that all that money was just going to get in, uh, unleashed into the economy uh, when the pandemic um, restrictions were lifted. Now, in some cases it has, which is being reflected in these sort of busy days at the at Pearson International Airport. Um, but uh, in, in Bank of Canada now warning that may, that may not come. Um, does that increase your concern too, that a lot of people are going to hold on to their cash because they're worried about uh, their cost of living going forward? I think so. I mean, when faced with uncertainty, people tend to to you know, enter risk management uh, or preservation mode, so to speak, they almost put their lifestyle on suspension mode. Um, you know, it's interesting to this point. The survey that came out yesterday or two days ago, and I can't remember the body, uh, uh, the, the the polling firm that ran it, but supposedly around forty percent of Canadian Canadians who own a home are concerned they might need to sell their home if interest rates keep going up. I don't fully believe in that because there is something called economic choice theory, which is given one set of economic circumstances, consumers might do something else. So if if having a shelter over your family's uh, heads is your most important thing, then people will cut back in other areas. And one of those other areas would likely include uh, travel. Uh, last question I wanted to ask you is that, you know, all the damage that's been done to the travel industry in the last two years, um, partly obviously, obviously because of the pandemic and, and because of other, uh, restrictions, uh, that, uh, stop people from being able to travel. Uh, do you think the government needs to step in, uh, to support, uh, the industry as it tries to recover, uh, in this new normal after the pandemic, uh, at least the restrictions are lifted? Well, there, there were a number of, of uh, relief packages out there, small business measures. I know that Canada's uh, tourism uh, and travel industries uh, uh, lobbied uh, the various ministers hard and the, and the prime minister, and there was some relief that was afforded. Uh, so both at a, a federal and a provincial level. And then on top of that, uh, several airlines did receive some financial assistance from the government of Canada, including uh, Air Canada, uh, Sunwing and Porter. Uh, WestJet did not take um, uh, any specific relief, other than as many firms did the the Q's uh, employee uh, wage uh, subsidy. So, so relief's been out there. I think the governments have have all sort of indicated that you know that, that the wells run dry there. And again, as long as we can keep bookings coming in, because at the end of the day, aviation travel is a it's a it's a cash flow intensive industry. And as long as we can keep four bookings coming in and making money off of those. For bookings were good, but again, again, the proof of the pudding, so to speak, will be this fall. Uh, if again we're indeed faced by recession and by uh, continued rise in interest rates and in inflation, so yes, great that the Bank of Canada is going to be focused on getting um, getting inflation under control. We just don't know yet what the break point is, how far they're going to have to go, and how aggressively with the rate hikes. That was Robert Kokonis, founder and managing director at AirTrav, an aviation consulting firm, talking to me about how the lifting, or rather the suspending of mandates, 
uh, vaccine mandates uh, could change uh, aviation, uh, the airline industry right now could uh, stop some lengthy delays from happening at the airport. And also talking about all the, all the other th- factors when it comes to uh, travel that could affect uh, the airline industry, uh, people's inability to uh uh, to afford certain things. Uh, when What happens when you can't afford something? It, uh, extras fall away, like travel. And so you don't book as many airline tickets. So talking about some of those concerns going forward. Uh, Dave Bradley will have our 8 o'clock news uh, at the top of the hour. After that, I want to get to the story about the Oakville Mega Church and the 38 allegations it now faces, what they are saying about that. This is Toronto Today. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck, in for Greg Brady on 640 Toronto. Thank you for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck, and I'll be back in for Greg Brady tomorrow for a live show from 5.30 to 9 on 640 Toronto. Have a great day.